Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. It is a particular delight today to have my coach, Howard Goldstein, on as my guest. Howard, welcome. Thank you. So, Howard, would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background, please? Oh, not at all. Yeah, I've spent 30 years in the sales training business, eight years selling and delivering sales training, followed by 11 years of training and coaching others who were selling and delivering sales training, and then another 11 years of creating training content and training programs. And then for the last four or five years, I've been doing some consulting and coaching with a handful of entrepreneurs. Excellent. Thank you. Well, let's set the scene here. When I first got into the sales training business, Howard was the trainer who had the biggest impact. The six hours that I had with him was worth nearly 17 years of royalty fees, marketing fees, and all the grief and everything else that went with it. So Howard taught me how to question, and he taught me how to diagnose customers' problems. Those six hours were pivotal. I still remember them with painful graphic detail. (laughs) There were seven of us in the class with 147 years of collective experience. And essentially, he just ran rings around all of us, never raised his voice beyond just above a whisper. And it was poetry. So you're in for a treat. Today, we're going to take on and tackle the thorny subject to train or not to train. That is the question. So, Howard, you and I have had many discussions about this because obviously many people invest in training and they're not really ready for it. So when is the wrong time to buy sales training? The wrong time to buy training is when it's the sort of reflexive go-to solution for, um, uh, let's say, lack of performance. If salespeople aren't hitting their numbers, sales are down, and the reflexive decision is we need sales training. And the, the interesting thing with that is there's a concept in business, Keith Cunningham in his book, uh, Road Less Stupid, that you had recommended to me, describes it as, in business, the problem is not the problem. Sandler has a similar concept that uh, the problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. So if sales are down, if the salespeople aren't hitting their numbers, there's a reason that that's happening. And until you find out or discover that reason, sales training just may not be appropriate because you don't even know where it should focus. In other words, you're buying a solution to a misdiagnosed or essentially undiagnosed problem. And that's not a very good reason to buy training. We don't know what the real problem is, but we think training will fix it. And what happens, this is interesting, what what happens is even if the training isn't specific to what the real problem is, the, the undiagnosed problem, the salespeople still get pumped up a little bit and they see some, you know, they get motivated, they're, they, they're getting encouraged and there might be a short-term spike in performance. The problem is it doesn't last. Okay, so 
don't just jump into sales training when the symptom is poor sales performance. Make sure that you spend time in diagnosis, uncovering what the real problem is, and trying to identify its cause. So how do you go about diagnosing the real cause of your problems? What would you suggest business leaders and sales leaders do to get to that root cause? There's a number of things they can do, but they, I think where they really need to start is, and I think all business leaders have the same problem, what they need is, is clarity. They, they need to define what exactly you're trying to accomplish. If you're going to invest in sales training, specifically, what do you want your salespeople to be able to do as a result of that training? And, and it has to be more specific than simply increase sales. Okay. In all the years that I was training, people would inevitably come to me with, we want our people to make cold calls. We want to increase sales. We want to close more deals. And all of those are wishy-washy outcomes. So in terms of helping people to get that clarity of thinking around their intended outcomes, what advice do you give people uh, when they're considering their options before they decide on training? Well, there's actually a three or four step process they can go through. We can go through that now, or we can look at a couple of other situations where training might not be the best first action and then come back to this, which would you rather do? (laughs) I, I feel a Chinese menu coming on. I would like to go through that process first. Okay. And we'll explore that uh, if you don't mind. I think to get clarity, the first step is to, is to get very specific. What exactly do you want to accomplish? And then this is not just for sales training. It could be for any corporate initiative. What do you, what do you want to accomplish? In, in this case, in sales training, what exactly do you want your salespeople to be able to do? Uh, what do you want them to do that they're not now doing? What do you want them to stop doing? And why is that important? And, and what do you need to determine whether or not you're, 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 gonna, you're accomplishing your goal? I mean, all of that needs to be identified up front. What do you want them to be able to do? What's gotten in their way of doing it now? And, and even more importantly, why is, why is that important? You know, what, what part does that play? If you want, if you want them to, to grow the business, that's a, an okay goal, but what, what does that mean? I mean, you have to be very specific. Is growing the business mean expanding the territory geographically? Does that mean finding more clients in the existing territory? Does that mean getting your existing customers and clients to buy more? Does that mean getting them to buy more frequently? Does that mean extending or expanding the business you already have with them? Does that mean leveraging that business, also called getting referrals? So all of that really needs to be identified up front before you even consider sales training or anything as a solution. So that's number one. Okay. Number two is... Identifying what you have to work with. What resources do you have? What assets do you have? 
Now, certainly your existing clients are an asset. You can get them to buy more, buy more often. Previous clients, if you have a list of previous clients, that's a resource, that's an asset. You can put together a campaign to regenerate business with with your previous clients, bring them back into the fold. If you have a marketing program, that's an asset. That's something you have to work with that can help you identify and engage more people and, and, and eventually close more business. So you have to look at the resources, the assets you have, and, and, and determine how you can use them. And then step three is, now that you've identified the, the, the assets, is you really need to run the numbers. How have those assets performed? What has worked? What hasn't worked? You know, if you have a marketing program, did it generate leads that converted or did it generate leads that went nowhere? If you had a client acquisition program, did it work? Was it a waste of time? So you have to look at at what you have to work with and then identify how well they worked. And that leads, I guess, into step four, which is figuring out if you're getting all you can from those assets, which ones are underperforming and maybe you don't need, which ones are overperforming, which ones are underutilized. It may be that sales training is unnecessary if you took your under your underutilized assets and, and put them into play and you improve the ones that were underperforming. Now that might be salespeople, but it may be other things, it may be your marketing program. You may have a marketing program that was developed three years ago. Meanwhile, the market has changed. The message that you need to get to the, to the market is different. So there's just other things that can influence sales that have nothing to do with the salespeople's specific skills. That really good advice. So um, just to summarize, first of all, be absolutely crystal clear about what your intended outcome is. What is the specific improvement and what exactly do you want to accomplish as a result of embarking on any form of change program? Then establish very clearly what resources, assets, and capabilities you currently have to work with. And they may be existing clients, previous clients, marketing programs, collateral, um, your social media, whatever. And then run the numbers. Make sure that you're assessing how well those assets are performing today and uh, identify other ways that they could be improved. Um, And make sure that you're not leaving underutilized assets. Um, or ignoring them, and you're focusing your attention on them because chances are you already have the assets within your capability or within your control in order to achieve your growth targets. Uh, you're probably mismanaging them. You're probably not asking the right questions. You're probably not holding people to account. So before you invest in a training program or any other form of change, then make sure you see what you've got and um, identify, is there a way that we can do this uh, without uh, training? Now, both Howard and I are huge advocates of training, if done in the right context and delivered well. But one of the challenges that I see is so much corporate training is essentially a tick-in-the-box exercise delivered through the learning and development or the organizational development team or through HR. 
And it's not really going to deliver any lasting change in terms of behavior or performance. So can we investigate those couple of examples that you mentioned before so that we can explore the kind of circumstances under which maybe training is a poor idea before we go into exploring why so much corporate training doesn't work? Oh, sure. There's uh, a second situation that comes up fairly frequently. And it generally occurs with larger companies that already have a selling process. They've developed their own selling process over a few years, and they don't want you to tinker with it. They, they, they want a sales training company to come in and help the salespeople improve their basic selling skills, but you just can't tinker with our selling process. We like it. We don't want to change it. We have collateral material. We have worksheets and flowcharts and forms, and, and we don't want to change any of that. We just want you to teach the salespeople how to do a better job of implementing it. And that tends to be a recipe for, for failure because the assumption there is that the existing process, the underlying strategy of the existing process is sound, that it's still relevant today, that the market during which that this process was developed is the same as the market today. And, and as we know, the market changes very rapidly. Today, yesterday's market is not today's market, and today's market is not tomorrow's market. So if you're going to keep the process and what is essentially technique training, then that's exactly what you get. You get technique training, but the impact on sales is marginal at best. As a matter of fact, I was having a conversation not too long ago with a sales director for a training company, a rather large training company that tends to focus on enterprise level sales organizations, companies with 50, 100, 200 salespeople. And the training that they deliver, I mean, the fee for it is not measured in the thousands or 10,000s, but in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what this director shared with me that in those situations where they go in to train a company that has their system, they love it, you can't touch it, that after working with that company for often six months to a year, even longer, the percentage of increase they achieve as a result of the training is typically no more than what the company had forecast before they even thought about sales training. So they invest $200,000 in sales training and they get the, the, the same increase that they would have gotten without it. Now, here's the interesting thing. The really bizarre thing is that they're happy. They're happy with the training. The salespeople love it. They say nice things about it. They, the, the trainers were knowledgeable. They were skilled. I mean, everybody's happy that they spent $200,000 and got nothing more than what they had expected to get anyway. One of the depressing statistics that I've become aware of is that I think it's only about 44% of what is forecast actually comes in. Now, 
I think it's the craps tables in Vegas give you a 47% chance of winning. <laughs> so the grim reality is that most people, when they are bringing trainers in, I think are gambling. And what they're really looking for is a tick-in-the-box exercise. The salespeople like having a structure, so they're happy because they think they, they understand what's going to happen. But if all you're doing is uh, generating the same level as was forecast. I mean, many will be coming in below forecast. So there is improvement. But does that change really last? Well, that is a very interesting point because I, I say the answer is no. And the reason I say that is because these very same companies that spend $200,000 or more on training this year will bring the company back a year or two later or bring back another company and do it all over again. And I think you're right. It's, it's simply ticking the box. You know, every three years we need to do sales training. So they just tick the box. This year we'll try this company. Three years from now, we'll try a different company. It actually can't get any better. If you think about it, if, if you're using a strategy today that was developed five years ago, it was developed for a completely different environment, a different market environment, a different selling environment, an environment that doesn't exist today. I mean, you're, you're, you're hamstringing your, your salespeople unintentionally, but, but that's exactly what you're doing. So what are the blind spots that prevent leadership from being able to see that they're making this mistake repeatedly? That's a good question. I think the, there's a disconnect between strategy and technique. You know, if a salesperson doesn't hit their numbers, whatever the goal is, the first response is we need to improve their skill rather than maybe we need to improve our strategy. This there's this disconnect between what they're doing and how they're doing it. What they're doing is dictated by strategy. How they do it is, is, a, is a function of skill. So if I'm doing the wrong thing, maybe even at the wrong time, but I do it more skillfully, I don't get a better result, regardless of how much money I spent on the train. You know, look, buying more expensive golf clubs doesn't make you a better golfer. Doesn't it? Bam. <laughs> well, th this then points to where I think if you are going to invest in training, you really need to focus your attention on training your leaders and your managers first. But the sales management in, is the most undertrained part of virtually every business that I've ever worked, uh, worked with. And what I see time and again is managers repeatedly spend their time on trying to prove uh, how good they are as salespeople instead of being great coaches, being great recruiters, being fantastic trainers, and really um, spending their time on helping their customers, uh, sorry, their uh, salespeople get better. And I, I think. So much time is sucked into rescuing salespeople instead of hiring really well. 
instead of developing salespeople so that they become really effective at what they do. So why is it that managers don't get more training? That is actually an excellent question. And it really leads into what I had identified was the third situation that where sales training is pro- should prob- probably not be the first, first action. And, and, and that's situations where, and I will answer your question in a moment, but that third situation where they shouldn't jump to training is, is those companies that have a, a sales force of, you know, they're old timers, they've been there forever, they hit their numbers, they can be relied on, they don't need training and, 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 and they don't need any, any, any help at all. But the, that company brings in some new people and they want training for the new people to get them up to speed, right? The company will teach them product training, but they want a sales company to come in, sales training company to come in and, and teach them the basics, get them up to speed so they can hit the ground running. So they put this, the, the salespeople into usually a short-term program that the sales manager doesn't get involved in. At best, he sticks his head in the door when there's a training session just to check on what's going on. And then here's what happens. Salespeople go through the training. Uh, they get out on the street. They, they generate some business. They, they've generated some, some prospects. And now it's Monday morning and they're sitting around the conference table talking about what they've done last week and what they've got on the books for this week. And they're bringing the sales manager up to speed. And and one of the new people talks about an opportunity he's working on. And before he can even finish explaining it, one of the old timers says, well, why did you do that? That's not how we do it. And then the new person looks over to the sales manager It looks at him waiting for him to rescue the situation. And of course, he sits silently or sort of brushes it off because he wasn't involved in the training. He can't defend what they did. So to partially answer your question, they don't get involved maybe because they don't think they need it. As you said, they spend more time proving that they're a great salesperson than they invest proving that they're a great sales manager. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Well, I, I think you have. I, I'm not sure that, well, you, you have to the point as to why sales managers really need to be involved in training. But I think what tends to happen is that they're not really trained how to be great sales managers, sorry. And the perennial problem, which many of my listeners will have uh, heard before, is um, you know, a top salesperson gets tapped on the shoulder when the manager gets fired, which is normally the case. A sales manager has an average tenure of 12 to 18 months at the moment. And then the the top salesperson gets tapped on the shoulder and they don't have any runway. So one of the lessons that I've learned and I'm implementing within uh, my clients where I'm CRO is that from day one, new hires are involved in learning the skills for the next job. So the new hire that comes in today will be um, mentoring and onboarding the next new hire in the sales uh, in the sales role. They will be given control to manage the sales meeting. They will be expected to deliver training. 
they'll be expected to coach. They'll learn how to forecast so that by the time they get to the point where they are a manager, they've already lived those skills. You've been assessed as to whether or not you have that capability. And those skills are developed, you know, recruitment, interviewing, coaching people on how to prospect, all these things. I think salespeople need to be coached into so that they can be groomed for management. Being tapped on the shoulder and told you are one is not a suitable runway. So I think leaders need to have that patience to look at the whole process and they need to be coaching managers as well. And that's something that I see desperately lacking in most sales organizations because their idea of coaching is just talking at them. So again, if you are advising founders, CEOs, and senior uh, C-suite executives, whether they're sales or um, any other department, what advice would you give them about coaching their um, middle management reports? I think the, the, the whole topic of coaching and, and bringing people along has to start at the top. I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head that a manager has to be taught how to be a manager. He has to be taught how to coach people and when to coach people and when to exercise his management authority and and when not to. But all of that really starts at the top. A company that has an in-house leadership program is the company that can pull that off. But most companies don't have that. So another area that I see in many corporates is uh, the sales enablement function. And they tend to be fixers of broken things. They tend to be people who spend their time running around looking for a reason to keep their job, in my experience. And it's a a shame because great sales enablement is incredibly empowering. But by and large, it's done very poorly. So again, what I'm curious about is how critical it is to have sales enablement aligned with leadership and to make sure that sales enablement, marketing, customer success, as well as sales are all involved in defining the strategy, in making sure that everybody is working towards the improving uh, the customer's experience and why it is that that just doesn't seem to be happening. You hit the nail on the head. In a sales organization, you have a lot of moving point, moving parts, all of which contribute to the ultimate goal of bringing in profitable, consistent sales. Each of those moving pieces, each of those people, each of those departments need to know what part they play in that overall process and how they integrate with the other moving pieces. That typically doesn't happen or it doesn't happen very effectively. I know a number of large corporations, they have a marketing department, they have an enablement department, they have all these different departments that tend not to speak to one another. I worked for an organization that was did a stellar job of, of doing that, of, of not talking to one another. 
they would have a department meeting and, 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 and relevant projects would be discussed and each department would, would know what they would be responsible for. There was no discussion of how they would integrate those departments. So everybody left the meeting with a very clear understanding of what they had to accomplish, but no understanding whatsoever of how they were going to integrate that, how they were going to work together to make it a seamless process. So everybody did their thing with the hopes that somehow it was like each person had a, a, a separate jigsaw puzzle. Each department would take pieces from their puzzle and then they would get together and try to create a, try to fit all those pieces together and, and, and create some sort of picture. And of course that doesn't work, but that's what it was like. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, he'll do his thing. And with any luck, we'll come together and all the pieces will fit. Well, that, that and, just sounds like every dysfunctional corporation. <laughs> Wherever you look, whatever the uh, industry, you see time and time and time again, all these different silos and people fighting each other or trying to do their best uh, work and probably doing a stellar job, but without any alignment or coordination. So I I think this is endemic. That goes back to what I said before about every business, every business leader needs clarity. What are you trying to accomplish? Why are you trying to accomplish it? Why is that important? And and everyone in the organization needs to understand that. And then they need to understand their their part in accomplishing whatever that goal is. So they need that clarity. And that message has to be distributed to everybody. I mean, it has to, everybody needs to know exactly what it is and why we're doing this and why it's important. And then they need, they need the competence to actually analyze their situation and figure out how do we actually achieve what we, what we say we want to achieve. And of course, then they need the capability to do that. They need the people, they need the processes, they need all the support. But it starts with the guy at the top, and it starts with having crystal clarity of what we're doing and a recognition of why we're doing it, why it's important, what it means to the company, what does it mean to the people in the company, what does it mean to the clients we have, what does it mean to our long-term growth. That message starts at the top and has to pervade the organization, and, and that really rarely happens. I don't know, unless you've seen it differently, but that, that, that's been my experience. Uh, well, I, I have seen it differently, but it is exceptionally rare. Yeah. And it starts with having uh, clarity at the top. Ambiguity at the top leads to conflict and politics at the bottom. And ambiguity is the mother of all FUBARs. So if you're looking for alignment within the organization, there has to be clear direction and clear purpose. I think you have to recruit people and develop a culture built upon values. And those values need to be focused on service. It's not just about making money, because where it's just about making money, then you tend to have compensation schemes that drive the wrong behaviors repeatedly. You end up with stovepipes and politics 
and everyone is blaming everyone else. You end up competing internally rather than competing with your competition because you're trying to survive in that horrific environment. Then you're blaming and justifying and making excuses and employees suffer. And if employees suffer, customers suffer. And that whole process effectively is, you know, drives towards inertia. Uh, if, and that's if you're lucky. So uh, I'm curious about this. If we look at the best organizations that you've worked with or you've observed, what are the qualities, the red threads that run through all of them? Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying a moment ago about the person at the top being involved. I mean, I can recall companies that I've worked with where the president of the company, whether it was a small company or a large company, the president of the company was part of the training. He was in the training sessions week after week, learning what his salespeople are learning, learning what the manager is learning. And it was somebody who wanted to be in that position so he could reinforce what was being taught. He could reinforce it with the management. He could reinforce it with the salesperson. But more importantly, it was obvious to the salespeople that this was an important important initiative because the president of the company was part of it. So when the guy at the top gets involved and gets involved as as one of the participants and not getting involved as the president who's just there to see what he's, what he's paid for, see what he's getting for what he paid. He's there as a participant to learn what they're learning. I think that that's what made the biggest difference. I can definitely support that. I remember back in 2007, I started working with an investment bank in London. And the CEO and all of his senior leadership team were involved. And before we kicked off the training, he basically read them the riot act. And it went something along the lines, uh, and I remember writing it for him. We're investing in this training. It's a long-term investment. If you hit your numbers and you don't implement the training, honestly, no one's really going to bat an eyelid. But if you're not hitting your numbers and you're not implementing the training, It's a long drop to the ground floor. (laughs) And he was involved. And right from the outset, it sent the message that it's not this too will pass. And in every organization since then, where I was training, I made it my point of only working with companies where the boss and at least the sales director and the managers were involved. And on the odd occasion where I allowed my uh, desire for their cash to get in the way, and they didn't do that. It was an unmitigated disaster. And I'm ashamed of that because I should have just said, no, I'm not taking you on as a client. And, you know, I apologize to those of you who I did that to. It's too late. I've left. (laughs) It really does make a difference because it sends a very different message because, you know, it's like when you hire a new sales manager and they've had a revolving door And the salespeople basically start running a book on how quickly this one will get fired. And the sales trainers, you you see this all the time. Sales trainers come in, they're in for however long the training program is, they're never invited back. And then they come up with the latest fad and they do the same thing again. And they feed people from a fire hose. That's the other uh, reason why I think 
a lot of training fails and why a lot of corporate training is catastrophic because they have some trainer come in who's probably very entertaining. They parachute them in, they stay there for a couple of days and then they go and there's no reinforcement because the managers haven't been there to build on Howard's earlier point. And so they don't know how to reinforce. So they can, not only can they not defend when the old timer says, that's how, not how we do things around here, but they've got no way of reinforcing. And the net result of that is that the salespeople are left in this kind of limbo. And um, if you look, if you know anything about learning theory, you know that if it's not reinforced repeatedly over a period of time, and uh, certainly very early in quick succession after having been learned, then people forget. And under pressure, people revert back to what they learned first. And they'll also pick up on uh, what they're seeing happening around them. And this is where I think the onboarding process is so important. That first 120 days when a new employee is deciding, is this the job I was sold? Is my boss an ass? Do I like the people that I'm working with? Was I better off somewhere else? You know, have I made a terrible decision? If you're not setting them up to succeed in that first 120 days with training, a proper onboarding process, regular coaching, accountability, the right tools to do their job, uh, their best work every day, peer groups, and building a community where the people on the team learn from one another, then it's almost destined to fail. And to, to bring point we made earlier, I think one of the big problems is sales meetings. Most sales meetings are just this weekly ass kicking where you've got people lying from this fiction called a forecast, everybody sitting around waiting for their turn to be beaten up or to uh, show how great they are. And you've got everyone else just sat there doing nothing, uh, probably looking at emails, wishing they were somewhere else. And I think sales meetings, one of the things that we should train managers to do is make sales meetings something people look forward to, where they learn and where they come out excited instead of drained. Your thoughts? Oh, true. I, I think with, with a sales meeting, I've sat you know, at the table with, with clients and, and listened to their Monday morning roundtable. And... And the interesting thing is that week after week, you hear the same thing over and over again. The company that they're working with, they hope the guy's going to make the decision this week. Uh, that's exactly what he said last week, and that's most likely what he's going to say next week. So we're making progress, but not enough to actually report anything. I, I think what happens in those meetings, what's missing and, and it's, it's the, the job of the, the manager is when a salesperson is describing the situation he's working on, it's interesting to know what you've done. But what we really want to know is what are you going to do? I mean, history, we, we don't get anywhere hashing over history. What we, what we want to look at is what's going to happen next and why you chose that and when are you going to do it and how are you going to do it? If you don't leave a sales meeting with an actionable item that can be reported, then you, you really haven't done anything. So, Howard, I'm curious about something. Um, you've been a fantastic influence on my career, which I cannot even begin to uh, thank you enough. 
Um, well, thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I mean, utterly well-deserved. But tell me this. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and advise the idiot Howard, age 23. What advice would you give him that you know he would have probably have ignored but would have benefited from greatly? I kind of suspected you were going to ask that because I know you've asked that to other people. You may not like my answer, which is I wouldn't tell the younger me anything because if I did, then the likelihood that you and I would be talking today at this moment would be nil. If I had given that younger me any sort of advice that he would have taken, most likely would have changed the course of my life. I'm very grateful you didn't have a golden ticket then. Well, but think about that. I mean, I've actually given that some thought. You can always come up with something that says, well, you know, I wish I hadn't have done this. Well, okay, if you hadn't have done that, what would, have you, what would you have done instead? And what impact would that have had? I mean, I can look back at my life and think of things that I did that I shouldn't have done, but, or, or I would have done differently. But again, if you do it differently, everything that follows that is likely to be different. I would be likely, you know, I might be married to a different person, living in a different place, doing something completely different, having different family, different friends. I mean, it, I like where I am. And Fair enough. I, yeah, I don't want to change. I know that's not the answer you were looking for, but... Not necessarily. I mean, um, I, I interviewed Keenan, and he said exactly the same thing. So, no, you're in good company. I'm curious if there was something, but again, not the end of the world. Tell me this, what, what have you been particularly influenced by in terms of what you've been reading, watching, or listening to that you think other people should pay heed to? Well, yeah, I, I, it's funny. I'm, I've completely run out of space on my bookshelf. So the books that I've read this year are actually sitting on a pile on top of the bookcase, so I'm <laughs> looking over at them, and, and <laughs> so here's here's what I what I'm looking at: Anthony Inarino's book yeah. "Eat Their Lunch," which you had recommended. I found to be a very very good book. Whether you're selling into a, a, a simple simple situation or a complex sale, I mean, he lays out excellent strategies. Keith Cunningham's book that I mentioned earlier, The Road Less Stupid, is just filled with, with business expertise, and it's a very easy read. I think I mentioned to you last week, I just started reading Dan Sullivan's book, uh, Who Not How, which is very insightful. I've also read some copywriting and marketing books, How to Write Copy That Sells by uh, Ray Edwards, which is a very excellent book, Dan Kennedy's book. No BS Direct Marketing is an excellent book. It's really about how to create your own personal brand. A book I go back to from time to time is Jay Abraham's book, Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got. I mean, if you're looking for yeah. ways to, to leverage your business, to expand your business, it's just filled with, with ideas of how to do that. So, I, read, I read that in my first year in Sandler, and that was really influential. So I'd forgotten about it, but thank you for the reminder. Um, you know, another book that I read, I guess it was last year, Robert Cialdini's book. You know, yeah. 
Robert Cialdini wrote a book about 32, 33 years ago, in, um, uh, Persuasion uh, or Influence, yeah. The Psychology of Persuasion. And then it was like 30 years before he wrote another book. And that book is Persuasion. Excellent, excellent book. And um, I just picked it up again and, and started to reread it. It's interesting. Scott Adams, in his book, Thinking Bigly, said that he thought Cialdini had been involved in Trump's 2016 election campaign because of the way he had structured it. So, uh, or they'd certainly taken the principles. So talk about Sailor, the millennium. So definitely worth a read um, and use it for good. (laughs) His latest book, which came out, I think, two years ago, Presuasion, it's pretty intimidating when you pick up the book. I think it's like 780-something pages. However, only, I think it's 230-something pages is the actual text. The rest of it is the research, explanation of the research that went into the writing of the book. Ah, right. I listened to it on audio, so you didn't get all of that. Yeah, um, but I'm so saying it's probably if you're... worth getting the uh, the uh, paperback or the Kindle version. Yeah, I mean the hardcover book. I, I, if I, I, I'm pretty sure it's 788 pages. Just very intimidating. Wow. But again, the text is only a portion of that. And um, in influence was really that was written as here's how people influence you, and it was written so so we could you know protect ourselves from people who are trying to influence us. But persuasion is actually written for the person that wants um, to use those persuasion techniques. Um, So just very good. And and, uh, it's worth the read. Excellent. Howard, thank you. How can people get hold of you? They can email me at howard at sixfigureselling.com. It's sixfigureselling.com. Excellent. Howard Goldstein, thank you. You're quite welcome. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation useful and illuminating, then please like, comment, and share. If you want to get hold of me, then email me at marcus at laughslast.com, laughs-last.com, or go to LinkedIn and connect with me on there. And if you could do me an enormous favor and go to Apple Podcasts, scroll down about a third of the page and leave an honest review and give me one star, two star, three stars or or five stars, I'd be very happy either way. But I'd love to have your feedback. And if there's anybody that you want me to interview for the podcast, then please do um, get in touch with me and connect us. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling.